Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Every night since it happened, I have the same nightmare. I know it's not over. I know there's only one way it can end. As soon as I close my eyes and lay down... I am there again. The sound is behind me again, the methodical, rhythmic, splashing sound of the thing that is hunting me, the sound that I know heralds the end. I was a fool to get caught out in this, and now I know I will likely meet my fate, just as all my friends did before. Why did I try to make a run for it? Why did I assume I would make it out? No one is getting out of here alive. I dash ahead, my limbs burning and my heart racing. I fall face first into the water, then I wake up. No one believed my story, and why would they? Officially, everything was just a terrible accident. A vacation. A large body of water. People drown. Not often, almost an entire group of friends, but people drown. And that's what I was told as my claims were ignored. Always the fake concerned looks as I gave my account. Eventually, those gave way to annoyance at my pressing of the subject. My friends' families even seemed determined to chalk it up to an accident and insist that I am dishonoring their memories by trying to make such outrageous claims about what happened. But I know I was there, and I know what I saw with my own eyes, and I know it was real. I know it was real because since it happened, I have scarcely left my house, and that is after moving to Nevada, the driest state I could think of. I decided to write this all down in the likely event that something happens to me. I know no one will believe this account either and assume that I am crazy, So I may as well share it with a broader audience, and maybe you will believe me, maybe believe why the falling rain itself is a herald of my impending death, and why I will never be caught out in the rain as long as I live, as short as that might be. We should have listened to that sign. My name is Tim. My friends and I had gone on a summer break vacation to a fancy spa and resort by a lake, far out in the country. Good times, relaxation, a drink or two, a massage or three, and maybe a chance to hook up with Becky if I played my cards right. We had just rounded the corner to a scenic vista that must be the road leading to the resort. The area was impressive, with beautiful forests, cool, clean air, and a crystal blue lake, a small slice of summer heaven. We saw what must be the resort poking out through the tree line. Seeing we were close, my friend Adam gunned the engine of his old van and said, Hang on, it's going to be a bumpy ride. And then, as if aiming for them intentionally, he hit a series of rough potholes on the road. We were all jostled around badly as we barely had enough space for all of us to fit in in the first place. And Gina punched Adam in the arm and chided him for driving so recklessly. All right, here we are, I thought to myself excitedly. I was genuinely looking forward to this. We were going to have a blast. 
we all practically fell out of the van. We started unpacking what little amenities we had brought with us. Besides myself, there was Adam, our friendly but rather egotistical resident jock, and my best friend. There was Adam's girlfriend, Gina, a very no-nonsense and intense type who would probably be the CEO of her own company after finishing school. Becky, who was Adams's sister, was beautiful, kind, and a little shy, but sometimes surprised us with how outgoing she could be. And finally, our resident know-it-all Laura, the smartest person we all knew, and the only one whose ego was bigger than Adam's. We had originally planned to go to a concert this summer since we didn't think we could afford something as lavish as a resort stay, but some person in Adam's family knew the owners and got us a stay for much cheaper than we could afford otherwise. I was taken aback by the sights around the resort, despite being almost eerier with how out of the way it was. The natural beauty made me forget all about how far away we were and how long it would take to get help if we needed it. We walked up to the main building and went inside. There was no staff there at the counter where one would normally check in. Before anyone else could ask a question, Adam rushed forward and started smashing the bell on the counter and saying, Ring-a-ling-ding. I say room service. Like a jerk. Gina sighed. Becky and Laura giggled and I rolled my eyes while laughing a little as well. A large man in a too tight fitting and not particularly seasonal turtleneck came out from a back room and went behind the desk. Good afternoon. You must all be the... He paused, looking down at a paper. The Johnston party, yes. That would be me and my associates, good chap, Adam said in a bad English accent, and we all had to suppress another groan. Very good, very good, said the concierge. My name is Mr. Dalton. I will be attending your stay along with Miss Llewellyn, who will be on call for all staff needs. I am afraid you caught us during our off time, you see. The resort here is nearly shut down during hurricane season, so some amenities may not be available. I scratched my head in confusion. Wait, did he say hurricane season? But that's a lake, not the ocean we are miles from it. What difference should hurricanes or possibly the odd thunderstorm cause for a forest resort? For safety purposes, we must also ask that you all sign these liability waivers before I give you your room keys. Due to the season, we will make every effort to, though we cannot guarantee your safety, especially if you are caught out in a storm while partaking of some of our activities here. Laura perked up at that. Liability waivers in case of accidental injuries or death, this says. What kind of place is this? We should go, guys. This seems very sketchy. Adam, the normal voice of reason, assuming reason had about one too many, was already signing his form. He bellowed, Come on, guys. It's not so bad. Probably just some weird insurance thing they have everyone do. Let's get it over with and go. I want to go swimming. Not wanting to be left out, we all agreed and reluctantly signed the waivers. Mr. Dalton smiled, handed us an antique-looking brass key, and led us to our room. It was a luxury suite that was very impressive, with several rooms, fine decor, two hot tubs, and an impressive view looking out over both the forest and the nearby Lake Kashur. Everyone was stunned by how nice this place was, especially with how cheap we were able to get it, though we did notice it may have been so cheap, because it seemed like we might be the only guests here during the season. Are people really that scared of storms this far away from the coast? I thought. I was bumped from my reverie by Becky, who accidentally dropped her bag right by me coming into the room. I bent down at the same time to help her pick it up, and we almost bumped our heads together. 
We each suppressed a little chuckle, and she smiled beautifully at me. It made me forget the quip I had come up with to try and poke fun at the situation, and I ended up staring dumbly until Adam grabbed my shoulder and said, Watch where you are going, dude. That big head of yours if a lethal weapon. The girls chuckled, and I got a little red in the face and went on to my room. Inside the room was immaculate besides being a little dusty, and there was a faint musty smell, possibly due to disuse. I started putting away what little I brought with me. I hopped on the bed and stretched out. As I lay on the bed, I leaned up and looked around the room. I spotted an odd scratch mark on the wall by the closet. I got up and looked closer at it. It was painted over but not restored, so the grooves of the cut were still visible. What did that? I wondered. I opened the closet and found nothing other than a hanging robe, a box fan, an ironing board, and a small box tucked under the board. What was this? I puzzled. I opened the box and saw a handful of old photos like old Polaroid style. It appeared to be footprints on the shore near the lake. The prints were strangely shaped, and there were more pictures of the prints in the forest dirt, a faint watery outline on what looked like a driveway and even on a carpeted ground which looked disturbingly like the same carpet the resort used in certain places. This was bizarre. Did someone have a foot fetish? I laughed to myself before becoming slightly concerned when I saw panicked handwriting on the back of the last one that appeared to be of the ground soaking wet with still falling raindrops captured in the picture. The photo was blurry, but looked like it may be of an outline of a person. The panicked writing read, The rain. It was the rain. That sound. It was them. What the hell were these, I thought. Maybe someone was peeping on people and got busted, or maybe someone was stalking the last person here. I thought of a few possibilities before I heard Adam shouting that dinner was ready. The staff, it seemed, despite the low number, had a solid cook, and we had a large dinner brought up to our room which to our shock was complimentary. We all had a good time, and Gina, despite normally being the straight-edge type, had actually brought a rather large assortment of drinks, so it was not long before we were all messed up and partying like a proper summer vacation. It was starting to get late, and I was about to pass out when Adam and Gina both demanded that we all go swimming out at the lake, since it was so nice and warm outside. We all agreed and changed into our swimsuits. As we walked down to the lake, we noted a rather prominent sign by the lake with a very large font indicating a strange rule. It said, absolutely no swimming in the rain. What a weird rule, I thought. Laura gawked at the sign as well and said, well, I have heard of not eating before swimming, but the rain has little influence on swimming safety in a closed lake with no boats about. And besides, Adam said boisterously, licking his finger and holding up to the air, there ain't any rain due in these parts for days. He snickered to himself over the sound of everyone's eyes rolling. Since the climate seemed okay, we splashed into the water and were soon swimming, singing, and having a good time. That was what I wished our whole vacation was like. I never thought such a catastrophe could happen at that point with how happy we all were, but it would start soon after. I hopped out of the water. Everyone was having a great time and thought it would be cool if we built a big bonfire by the shore and went to work trying to get the materials to make it, but my plan seemed thwarted as a large thunderclap peeled in the sky and rain began to fall down onto the lake and the shore, the pattering raindrops ensuring that my hope of starting a fire was moot. Dang, I thought that would have been cool. Uh-oh, we are going to be in trouble. I hope they don't throw us out, Gina said this time, 
rather drunk and uncharacteristically unserious. Yeah, but our towels are getting wet, I thought, and for some reason also thought of that strange picture from the room that mentioned rain. Becky got out of the water first, grabbed her towel and came up near me under a close-by tree where I had attempted to make the fire. Sometime for a storm, eh? I said rather lamely. Yeah, sure is, she said trying to humor my attempts at banter. What broke the awkward pause was a strong, almost searchlight-style light looking toward the water. It shined on us briefly, and as we squinted at it, we heard two sharp honks from a whistle, which almost sounded like an old steam engine. Before we knew what had happened, there was a commotion at the resort, and Mr. Dalton and the enigmatic Miss Llewellyn had jumped into a large red truck with warning lights on the top, and thundered out of the lot. They were driving so fast I thought they might be coming for us since we had broken the rule. Just as it seemed like they were going to run us down, they veered off and started down the road, pausing only briefly to have Mr. Dalton roll down his window and say, Bad luck, my friends. It was nice to have known you. Godspeed, and indeed God knows you will need it for what comes next. He continued saying, We left the resort unlocked, but I don't believe it will be of much help. You must accept our deepest apologies. There is little we can do to help now. If you can escape, if you cannot, die well. We will notify your next of kin. Farewell. And he rolled up the window and sped off. What the hell does that mean? What was going on? I was panicked now, and so was Becky, who was looking back and forth, and the rain intensified. They just left us? What is going on? She cried. I tried to calm her down, but I didn't know what that was all about either. Maybe it was some weird prank. What did we miss? Adam said, finally getting out of the water and lumbering towards us, still partly drunk. The staff just left, I said. They just up and left, and they are gone. They said they left the resort open, but that they couldn't stay there. I don't know what kind of prank this is, but it's not funny. This stunt, the rain, the pictures. I was ranting, thinking maybe Adam set up this sort of thing as a big joke. But I saw the confusion on his and everyone else's face, and was afraid that this might indeed really be happening. What did they actually say? Laura asked, as she approached as well. I explained what Becky and I saw, and then we looked at each other as if reading the other's mind, and asked in unison, Where is Gina? Hey Gina babe, time to get out of the water, Adam shouted a thunderclap, almost cutting him off seconds after he shouted. All right, if you buzzkills have to ruin it, I guess, she slurred as she slowly walked out of the water, a buzzed grin still on her face. As she walked up and out of the water by a boat launch, we heard an odd sound like the splashing footsteps she was making coming out of the water. They seemed to double somehow. It sounded like two people were walking out of the water, the other tread being much heavier and steadier. She must have heard it too, like us, because she paused briefly almost as if to test the sound and see if it continued. After a brief delay it did. Splash, 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 stomp, stomp, stomp. Then it stopped. Gina turned around and said, thought I was going crazy, and she was wrenched off her feet to the ground, a sickening crunch being heard as her head smashed down onto the concrete. We saw her flailing and ran to help, but to our horror, she began getting pulled into the water by some unseen force, and her eyes and mouth began to leak water when she tried to scream. Adam and I grabbed her arms and tried to pull her back out, but we were kicked off our feet as well and heard even more watery footsteps and a disturbing gurgling sound. Adam was shouting and thrashing, trying to pull Gina out of the water with all his might. He cried out to her to breathe, as it looked like he was getting some response from her, 
Her mouth opened again, and water gushed out and enveloped his head, as well there was a splashing and sprinting sound of footsteps. Adam was knocked back with such violent force that he was launched into the lake, and rather than sinking, he just floated on the surface convulsing and apparently drowning, despite not being under the water. This spectacle was enough. Becky and Laura shrieked louder than I had ever heard anyone scream in my life and ran towards the resort. I shook myself from my own terror-induced stupor and did the same. We made it inside, panicked and panting, shivering with cold terror in our breath. I closed the door to the entryway and found a large lock and slid it into place. We huddled around not knowing what to say. Becky was crying, but Laura broke the silence. What the hell just happened there? That can't be real. They just drown, above the water. Those footsteps, what is going on? I didn't know what to say. I just said, we need to find a phone. We need to call for help. Maybe there's a landline here that actually has reception. Since we knew the phones back in the room had not had service for miles before we got here. The rain was getting heavier. It was a downpour outside. As we searched around the entrance and the reception office, we found a phone, but our hope was short-lived. We picked it up and the line was dead. There was nothing for emergency services, no radio or anything else. We were stuck here alone. As my panicked and grief-stricken mind came to grips with this revelation, we heard and saw something unbelievable outside. Over the sound of the intense rain, we heard the heavy, methodical approach of splashing footsteps. They stomped across the parking lot, splashing gouts of water where they landed, but nothing was making them that we could see. We held our collective breaths as the stomping, splashing footfalls approached the front door and stopped. There was a terrible silence, and for a moment we thought nothing might happen. Then we heard what sounded like scratching on the glass, and then a terrible cutting sound as words began to appear being cut into the glass. We started to shake as we read the words, Help us, we are drowning. Help us, we are your friends. You can't leave us. Becky let out a sob. No, Adam, no. Is he still alive? We need to help him. My brother, he is dying. We stopped her from moving towards the glass, and as we stood there petrified by the invisible writer, we heard a knock and scratching at the back door. Then hideous gurgling sounds like one's head being forced underwater. It sounded from above as well. My heart felt like it stopped when we heard footsteps wetly clomping on the ground above us. Laura ran sprinting away toward the room. I couldn't breathe. I sat there dumbfounded. Becky grabbed my arm and was screaming at me. They have Adam! I couldn't respond, so she ran toward the window where she said she saw him. She said he was on the ground and he was drowning. She unlocked the door and the sound of the bolt shooting back knocked me back into my conscious self. I barely had time to loose. A strangled scream of Becky no! Then a cascade of water, and the thunderous marching of wet footsteps rushed forward and bowled her out of the door and into the drenched ground beyond. I saw her terrified look and she looked back at me. Her scream was cut off by some unseen hands smothering her with that impossible water. I ran as fast as I could. I tried to get to the room where Laura was, but as I reached the door and frantically tried it, I realized I didn't have the key. I screamed for Laura to let me in, but I heard nothing on the other side of the door only footsteps behind me, slow, wet, padding footsteps over the carpeted floor of the resort. I screamed as I lowered my shoulder and barged into the door, once, twice, three, then four times until finally it broke on a hinge and fell forward. The padding footstep was behind me, and when I fell into the room I saw Laura with her hands over her ears huddled on the couch, almost catatonic. Come on, I shouted, we have to go now. 
I beseeched her, but she was utterly unresponsive. The footsteps were in the room now, slowly moving toward the middle of the room. My heart sank, but I fled and left the footsteps to catch up to and engulf her. I'm only thankful I didn't have to hear the scream. I slammed my door shut, grabbed my bag with my phone, personal effects, and everything else, and closed myself in the closet of my room. I heard the footsteps, then the knocking, then the scratching, then the voices. Help us. We are stuck under the water. Only you can save us. Help us. It hurts. The water there's too much. We are drowning. I held my hands over my ears as well, and closed my eyes and hoped and prayed for an end to this, that maybe this was all just a terrible dream. After what felt like ages, the sounds stopped. The voices, the footsteps, the scratching, it was all quiet now. I noticed the rain had stopped as well. The rain, maybe it was somehow connected to it, the damn rain we were swimming in the lake. Did those losers know this could happen? Was that what the waivers were for? My hands curled into fists. I couldn't believe it. I redoubled my will and fought on, determined to at least make them pay for knowingly risking my friends' lives and getting almost all of us killed. If it stopped raining, I could get away. I needed to get out of here. I cautiously opened the door and looked outside. Nothing grabbed me, and no watery footsteps were moving anywhere. It was completely silent. I walked out slowly through the hall to the living room, fearing what I might see, but Laura was gone. I felt ashamed and guilty that I had not tried to grab her and run to the safety of a room. I slowly walked out of the room and downstairs. The wind was still kicked up, and the front doors were hanging open, creaking in the blowing wind. It was almost morning, and a faint light crept into the entryway. I had gotten Adams's keys from his room and should be able to get away using the van. My eyes darted frantically, and I looked around, peeking outside to see ominous clouds, but thankfully there was no rain at the moment. I slowly walked to the parking lot, my heart racing at the sounds of my own footsteps, making sure I didn't hear another behind or in front of me. I got to the van and thought I might actually make it. Yet, as I pressed the unlock button on the fob, a thunderclap resounded from over the hills, and in moments a morning shower had begun the rain pattering off of me in the van. I froze at first, and then exploded into motion, reaching for the door to open when I saw inside and fell backwards in indescribable horror. Adam and Gina, or at least their boneless-looking bodies, slowly writhed up into the front seats of the van, almost as if being moved into position like some demonic marionette puppets. I stood there, mouth agape in horror, as Adam's face slunk toward me and his mouth opened. Water gushed out and began filling the cabin and spilling out, and the corpse things that used to be my friends moved to open the doors, and the wall of water rushed out to meet me. They remained collapsing onto the dashboard, but the splashing footsteps began immediately coming towards me again. I screamed like a madman and broke for the woods, the implacable footsteps never receding too far behind, no matter how fast I ran. It felt hopeless. My energy was all but spent, and I ran past my limits in a pure, desperate bid to survive. My whole body was aching, and I could barely breathe, but I kept running. I knew if I stopped, I would be next. I thought I could see what might be a main road. Maybe the thing might not be able to follow me past a certain point, but just as I approached the road, I tripped over my own tired feet and some vines and fell into a ditch by the road that was filled with water from the flash flood. I rolled over spitting water out and screaming and panting and defiantly challenging my fate. I stood in the water that was up to my waist. I looked back the way I came, and I heard nothing. 
I let out a sigh of relief and I thought, could this really be over? There was a painstaking silence. I exhaled and turned around to try and climb out of the ditch. Then I heard it, just like I have been hearing it in my nightmares ever since the footsteps in the rain. To this day, I don't know how or why I got away, when my friends did not. I don't know why I am sharing this. Maybe survivor's guilt. Either way, I don't think I will be around much longer. There's no way I can avoid the rain forever. It's still out there. Somehow it can follow me wherever I go. And as soon as the rain starts falling, those footsteps start falling as well. I moved to the driest state in the country, but it won't be enough. Even when it's not raining, I hear it in my nightmares. I think of my friends being drowned before my eyes. I still hear their screams. It still feels so real, just like that faint sound I hear. No, it couldn't be. I checked the forecast this morning, yet as I write this, it sounds like thunder in the distance and perhaps a light pattering of rain. Please excuse me, I had better lock the doors. I hear the footsteps now and know I will be having visitors soon. Ten years ago, in my senior year of high school, I found myself living a solitary existence. I wasn't bullied or tormented, but I didn't have any close friends either. It was just me and my video games, which offered an escape from my ordinary life. My dad and I shared a quiet home, and I cherished the time we spent together. You see, my mother had become entangled with a dangerous crowd when I was around 10 or 11, and my dad decided it was best to move us away from that world. It was a messy process, but it was done to protect me. Despite numerous attempts to help her, my mother always turned down my dad's efforts, until one day, she vanished completely. Life moved on, and as I grew older, my dad occasionally had to leave for a weekend for work. I didn't mind being home alone. My dad trusted me, and I was responsible enough to handle it. On one particular weekend during my senior year, my dad had left for the night following our usual routine. He left some money for pizza and soda, a rare treat in our house where we didn't usually have soda. As I sat down to enjoy my pizza, I settled into my usual routine, eating, gaming, and losing myself in digital worlds. While I was engrossed in playing Grand Theft Auto, I began to notice something strange. There were faint, subtle vibrations and small bumps coming from downstairs. I had been home alone many times before, and I couldn't recall ever experiencing these sensations. They weren't alarming, yet they were unsettling, especially considering the late hour. Every so often, I heard a soft, scoffing noise. I paused the game, trying to listen intently, but mostly I heard silence, occasionally punctuated by a small bump or creak in the house. The notion of an intruder briefly crossed my mind, and I even entertained the idea of ghosts, though I quickly dismissed that notion. This internal debate persisted for about half an hour. I finally decided to investigate and prove to myself that there was nothing to fear. Slowly, I crept down the upstairs hall, heading toward the source of the sounds. As I got closer, the muffled noises grew louder and I began to fear the worst. The idea of calling the police crossed my mind, but I hesitated, worried about the possibility of wasting their time. As I reached the bottom of the stairs, I noticed a light emanating from the kitchen on the other side of the house. I was almost certain that I had turned it off before heading upstairs, and my compulsive nature made me confident in my memory. My heart pounded as I inched toward the kitchen. The sounds of rummaging grew louder, accompanied by a soft, eerie humming. I hesitated, 
fearing I might encounter a menacing intruder. However, the voice sounded oddly familiar. Peeking into the kitchen, I saw a small, disheveled woman with wild hair standing by the sink. It was my mom. She was humming a melody I recognized from my childhood, I've Got No Strings, from Disney's Pinocchio. A flood of memories rushed back. This was a song she used to sing to me when I was very young, one of the few memories I had of her. I couldn't move, my body trembling in a strange mix of fear and curiosity. Her voice, which should have been soothing, sent shivers down my spine. She turned to me with a big, unsettling smile, revealing rotting teeth and sunken eyes. She asked, There's my baby. What are you doing awake at this hour? I stood like a statue, unable to respond. She came closer, placing her dirty hand on my shoulder, commenting about my father's habits with the cabinets and chuckling in a disturbing, cartoonish manner. Overwhelmed with fear, I finally broke free from my paralysis and rushed back to my room locking the door behind me. I immediately called the police and my dad. My dad instructed me to stay in my room with the door locked. The police arrived quickly, and I could hear a confrontation downstairs as my mother shouted at them to leave her house. They were aware of the situation from my dad's call and mine. After a brief struggle, there was silence. One of the officers called my name, indicating it was safe to come downstairs. I spoke with the police for a while as they drove my mother away. Another officer remained parked outside our house to ensure my safety, which I greatly appreciated. My dad returned home early the next morning, and I could sense his discomfort. We had narrowly avoided a potentially horrific situation. My mother had been carrying two knives, one from when she broke in, and another a sharp kitchen knife belonging to my dad. She never used them or threatened anyone with them, but the fact that she had them was unsettling. Perhaps the most terrifying aspect of this ordeal was that my mother shouldn't have known where we lived. We had moved far away to protect me, and my dad never disclosed our new address to her. She had broken into the house through a downstairs window, a detail I had missed due to my headphones. I couldn't shake the image of my mother humming and wandering through the house, potentially waiting for my dad while I was upstairs. Even now, after 10 years, the memory still haunts me. Every time I hear the song from Pinocchio, I freeze up, hoping that one day I can move past the fear and remember my mother in a positive light. I remember that fateful night in Joshua Tree, July 23rd of 2018, as if it were yesterday. I had embarked on a western United States road trip a solo adventure that was a far cry from my homeland. The barren beauty of Joshua Tree National Park was my chosen destination, and I had parked my motorhome at the Black Rock Campground. As I arrived at the campground in the late afternoon, I was met with an intense heat wave that seemed to envelop everything in its sweltering embrace. The sun's unforgiving rays painted the landscape in shades of fiery orange and burnt sienna. Despite the heat, or perhaps because of it, the campground appeared nearly deserted, a stark contrast to the bustling images of campers I had seen online. There were only one or two other groups of campers in sight, and I couldn't spot any park rangers nearby. It felt eerily desolate, like an abandoned outpost in the heart of the desert. Still, my excitement trumped any concerns, and with a naive sense of adventure, I chose the most isolated lot at the back of the campground. 
It was a decision fueled by my desire to be close to the untouched wilderness, surrounded by the beauty of the desert flora and the occasional adorable jackrabbit. Little did I know that this choice would soon send shivers down my spine. My chosen lot backed right onto the threshold of the wilderness. As the sun dipped below the horizon, casting the desert in an otherworldly twilight, I felt a mix of serenity and unease. The campsite was bathed in a dusky hue, with the distant mountains looming like ancient sentinels. The isolation and silence were so profound that it felt as if I had entered a world untouched by time. Before settling in for the night, I decided to take a leisurely stroll, capturing the surreal beauty of the desert with my camera. I climbed a small hill near my van, capturing the ever-changing colors of the desert at dusk. As darkness gradually enveloped the landscape, I couldn't shake the feeling of vulnerability that came with being a lone traveler in such a remote area. With trepidation, I retreated to the confines of my camper van to prepare for sleep. Clutching my pocket knife and pepper spray tightly, I lay in my makeshift bed. The desert night was eerily quiet, broken only by the occasional hoot of an owl or the distant howl of a coyote. My heart pounded in my chest as my mind conjured unsettling scenarios of someone knocking on my window, an intruder lurking in the shadows. The relentless anxiety made it difficult for me to drift into a peaceful slumber. I tossed and turned, my senses on high alert. The desert night seemed to hold its breath, and I couldn't escape the feeling of being watched by unseen eyes. My imagination ran wild and each rustling of the wind outside felt like a whisper of impending danger. Eventually, I surrendered to exhaustion and drifted into a fitful sleep. But even in my dreams, I couldn't escape the sense of foreboding that hung in the air like a heavy shroud. Nightmares plagued my restless sleep, vivid visions of a mysterious figure knocking on my window, of malevolent intentions lurking in the darkness. Unable to find solace in sleep, I gave up the futile endeavor and turned my attention to the van's window. With my heart still racing, I decided to distract myself by messaging my family back home. The soft glow of my smartphone illuminated my face as I typed away, trying to shake off the lingering fear. Then, as if on cue, the universe unveiled a spectacle that would forever haunt my memory. Out of the vast, star-studded expanse of the desert sky, about six bright gold lights appeared. They shimmered like fireworks, suspended in the air, frozen in time just before the moment of explosion. My breath caught in my throat as I watched in astonishment. The lights formed a half-moon formation, their golden glow casting an eerie radiance on the barren landscape below. I couldn't tear my eyes away from the celestial display, mesmerized by its otherworldly beauty. These lights weren't like anything I had ever seen. They weren't moving in any discernible direction like shooting stars or meteors. Instead, they simply hung there, defying explanation and my understanding of the natural world. As I continued to gaze at the mysterious lights, they slowly extinguished, one by one, vanishing into the vastness of the night sky. But just when I thought the spectacle had ended, another light appeared in the far distance to the right. It too lingered for a few heart-pounding seconds before fading into obscurity. I couldn't believe my eyes. I wasn't a firm believer in otherworldly occurrences, but I couldn't deny the strangeness of what I had just witnessed. I frantically grabbed my smartphone and began to search for any logical explanation, scouring the internet for astrological events or natural phenomena 
that could account for those bizarre lights, but my search yielded no results. The night remained eerily silent, and the desert seemed to hold its secrets close. The lights had left me with a sense of wonder and unease, a puzzle I couldn't solve. I was left with more questions than answers, and I couldn't shake the feeling that I had witnessed something beyond the realm of human comprehension. I couldn't sleep for the rest of the night, my mind consumed by thoughts of those enigmatic lights in the desert sky. I couldn't help but wonder if anyone else had ever experienced something similar, or if there was a rational explanation that had eluded me. As the first light of dawn crept over the horizon, I knew that I had ventured into a realm of uncertainty, a place where the boundaries between the known and the unknown blurred, leaving me with a haunting sense of wonder and dread that would stay with me for the rest of my life. One thing that I hate almost more than anything in the world is being waited on. I don't mean at restaurants or places like that, I just mean in life in general. I've always been pretty independent, and when I first met my husband, we didn't click right away because we would literally fight over who was going to pay for the check. Fast forward to now, and we have a nice balance of things. One thing that I usually do is take care of the house, and even specifically the kitchen. I cannot stand a messy kitchen and dishes in the sink, and he's infamous for leaving dishes in the sink, so that's why I take care of the kitchen when I can. Now, a few weeks ago, I had to have surgery on my knee. This past summer, I destroyed my knee playing softball and still continued to finish the game, doing more damage to my knee. I put the surgery off for as long as I could, but the pain was too much. It wasn't even the procedure that I was anxious about. I actually wanted to just get it done and out of the way. I was more anxious that I was going to be practically bedridden for a little while. My husband is amazing, and I knew that he'd take care of me, but I also knew that the kitchen was going to be a mess. I'm sure this makes me sound pretty controlling, but I don't even care. I just love making sure everything's clean. The day came, the surgery passed, and in bed I was stuck, and I hated it. For me, it felt like I was trapped in a cell. I was told not to move for several days unless it was for the bathroom, and even then I should have assistance. Luckily, we had a bathroom in our bedroom, so it was only a few hops in case I needed to go. The first night I stayed in bed, and the next day at home, I was already restless. I hopped to the bathroom, and when I was done, I realized that I was actually getting around pretty well. When my husband left for work, he begged me to stay in bed and that he would take care of the kitchen and dinner when he got home. All I could think about was that the kitchen was a mess. It didn't take me long to convince myself that I was all right to make my way there for a little while and just do the dishes. I took my time on the stairs because I will admit it was not an easy task. When I got to the bottom, I smelled something strange, not trash or old food that I was half expecting to smell coming from the kitchen. What I smelled was what I thought at first was some sort of cheap cologne, but I knew my husband doesn't even wear cologne. Then it hit me harder as I took a few more steps. It wasn't cologne. What I was smelling was Axe body spray. I knew it right away. When I was in middle school, all the teenage boys would spray themselves with it after gym class to mask the smell of body odor, and I'll never forget that horrible smell. I took a few more hops. I know I should have had my walker at the time, and the smell was so strong that I felt like I could taste it. 
I knew my husband wasn't wearing that because I could have easily smelled it on him by now in our relationship. I went to text my husband and said, Hey, don't get mad, but I actually hobbled downstairs. Why does it smell like Axe body spray here? After I sent it, I went to the kitchen, and I'll have to be honest, I was surprised it wasn't a mess. There was a small plate and fork in the sink. And other than that, he was doing a good job at keeping the kitchen in line. I went over and washed a couple of the things in the sink and noticed that the back door, which is in the kitchen, was slightly opened, more ajar or cracked than actually opened, but it still wasn't shut. Maybe this isn't that big of a deal for some people, but we rarely, if ever, use that door when we go out back. We usually go out the side door. We usually just keep that door locked and put the recycling bin in front of that door. I sort of hobbled over to investigate some more and I noticed that the bin had moved a few inches as well. It was like the door was open from the outside, and the bin slid out of the way just enough to let someone in. I already knew the answer, but I texted my husband again anyway, and said, Did you open the back door for any reason? He didn't respond right away. I hopped back into the living room and sat on the couch, trying to put all the pieces together and put a rational spin on everything. The thought of someone breaking in didn't even remotely cross my mind because we lived in a really nice neighborhood with almost no crime ever. My husband called me back a few minutes later and told me that he had called the police just as a precaution to make sure nobody broke in and that he was heading home from work as well. I got off the phone with him and sat there quietly, waiting for the police and my husband to show up. Then, without noticing, bang! The closet door in the living room shot open and a tall man dressed in black ran out of the closet and out the back door. As soon as he ran by, that smell of axe was incredibly overwhelming. I tried hopping to the window, but I was only able to get a brief glance of the man as he ran by the side of the house. I noticed a very thick beard, and that was pretty much it. He was out of my sight in seconds. Not long after, the police showed up, and then my husband right after. I gave them all the information I could, but like I said, I didn't really have much to give to the police. The most disturbing part of all of this is that the cops are sure that the person didn't break into the house. There were no signs that he forced himself in, which led the police to believe that whoever this intruder was, he may have had a key to the house. My husband went out right away and bought new locks for all the doors and made sure all the windows were locked as well. No other neighbors reported anything suspicious, which makes it even more likely that this person targeted our house specifically. He also didn't steal anything, which begs the question, what the hell did he want if he wasn't swiping Axe body spray and left that door cracked? Whatever it is he wanted, he may have gotten. This is a story that happened to me not too long ago, and it all started in the tranquil rural landscape of Pennsylvania, where I call home. My name is Tom and I live near a beautiful place known as Tyler State Park. This park is a picturesque spot for riding horses and taking leisurely walks. It's my sanctuary, where I often bring my loyal companion Lola for our adventures. Riding horses down the winding trails of this park is a truly majestic experience, and I've cherished every moment spent there. One person who played a significant role in my life was John, a man in his 70s. John, a veteran who had fought in the Korean War and suffered from a bad hip, owned White Pine's horse farm. In exchange for my occasional help with tasks like dropping hay in his fields and filling water troughs, 
John generously allowed me to ride his energetic but friendly chestnut horse, Irish Red. This arrangement had been a part of my life for several years. As I mentioned earlier, I lived near Tyler State Park, and John's farm was conveniently located on the park's edge. There was a less traveled route that provided easy access to the park, and it was on this path that my eerie tale begins. It was February 26th, and the weather had finally started to improve after a harsh winter. I woke up to a glorious day and decided to take a walk in the park before embarking on a ride with Irish. I drove to the farm, called John, and informed him of my plans. He wished me a great walk, and I parked my car outside the barn. I made my way to the trailhead, which was only about six or seven meters away from the barn, and started my walk. The entire trail was deserted, which struck me as oddly creepy now that I think about it. The woods seemed to whisper ominous sounds, as if something lurked just beyond my field of vision. Nonetheless, I pressed on and enjoyed the solitude. As I strolled down a trail next to the river, I suddenly spotted a man on the other side. He wore baggy gray sweatpants and a black, oversized sweatshirt. He appeared to be in his forties or older, which was unusual because I typically only saw younger people in the area. My attention was immediately drawn to the fact that he was holding a gun. Now, I wasn't an expert on hunting laws, but I was pretty sure it wasn't legal to hunt with a Glock pistol, especially not in a public park. An uneasy feeling crept over me, and when he noticed me, he looked up in surprise and hastily threw his gun into the dense woods behind him. I couldn't help but chuckle to myself, wondering what kind of drugs this man might be on. I called out to him asking what he was doing. He replied with a vague, nothing, and stared at me as if I were the one with the gun. I mentioned that I had seen the gun, and he turned so fast that it sent shivers down my spine. He grabbed the gun, but it wasn't the Glock he had initially thrown. It was a marksman rifle. I couldn't identify the exact model in that frantic moment. He screamed at me, insisting that I not call the police and claiming that it wasn't what it looked like. But I wasn't convinced, and I asked him why he had a gun. He pointed it at me menacingly, refusing to answer any of my questions. Frightened and unsure of what to do, I blurted out that I would call the police. This sent him into a fit of rage. With a swift and menacing movement, he raised the gun towards me, and fear coursed through my veins like never before. I turned and sprinted, the sound of three deafening gunshots echoing in my ears. Panicked, I pulled out my phone and dialed John's number. As I did, I noticed him waiting across the river, already making his way toward me. John picked up and I barely had time to catch my breath as I rushed to tell him the story in under 20 seconds. He managed to keep up with my rapid narration, instructing me to keep running while he promised to call the police. I continued running, but I couldn't shake the fear that had taken hold of me. I heard four more gunshots, and the sound of projectiles whizzing past my ears left me trembling. My stamina was draining rapidly, and I knew I couldn't keep running indefinitely. Desperate for a hiding spot, I approached a corner of the trail and decided to make my stand there. My heart raced as I scanned the area for something, anything, that could be used as a weapon. However, I found nothing to defend myself with. The footsteps of the armed man grew louder as he rounded the bend, and I braced myself for a life-or-death confrontation. As he passed by the tree behind which I crouched, I pounced on him with every ounce of strength I could muster. He let out a piercing scream and dropped the gun. I grabbed it and retreated, pointing it directly at him. My voice quivered as I ordered him to get down and wait for the police. His anger flared, 
and he charged at me. In a desperate moment, I swung the gun, striking him squarely in the head. He crumpled to the ground, momentarily knocked out. I kicked him hard in the ankle to ensure he couldn't recover quickly, but to my surprise, he got up faster than I anticipated. He may have had some advantage, but I managed to keep him subdued until the police arrived. He was taken into custody and subsequently sent to a mental hospital for rehabilitation. I hope that sharing my story serves as a cautionary tale, urging others to be vigilant and carry self-protection measures in today's unpredictable world. Whether it's pepper spray, a knife, or any means of defending oneself, it's always better to be prepared as I learned that day. I've always believed that we all have our share of traumatic experiences in life, some more severe than others. One night during high school, I found myself living through a horrifying and traumatic event that I'll never forget. It all started when I stayed overnight at my buddy's house. His parents had planned to celebrate their anniversary out of town on a Saturday night, so he invited me over to keep him company. The plan was simple, hang out, play some games, and have a good time. As the evening progressed, a few more friends joined us, and we had a blast playing games and laughing together. Eventually, everyone left around 11 p.m., leaving just my buddy and me. We decided to wind down and watch the office around 2 a.m. as we dozed off. That's when it happened, a loud, jarring bang from downstairs. My initial thought was that it sounded like the front door, but my friend dismissed it as a neighbor's noise and advised me to ignore it. Fatigue weighed heavily on us and we didn't initially panic. Perhaps it was just a neighbor, or maybe a bird had collided with the house. We tried to convince ourselves that it was nothing to worry about. However, the banging at the door soon began, and it was not random. It was rhythmic and deliberate, echoing ominously throughout the house. We had no clue what to do. This wasn't a neighbor, and it was the middle of the night. The constant knocks, coming every few seconds, sent shivers down our spines. The intensity of the knocks varied, sometimes gentle, sometimes fierce, but it didn't matter. The fact that someone was out there at such an hour was enough to fill us with dread. Both of us stealthily moved towards a window, hoping to catch a glimpse of the person responsible for this unsettling disturbance. The man we saw was utterly ordinary, which only added to the weirdness of the situation. He appeared like an average guy, wearing sneakers, jeans, and a Nike polo shirt. His short, neatly groomed hair and clean-shaven face gave no indication of any nefarious intent. He looked nothing like a criminal or a sketchy individual. Despite his unremarkable appearance, the fear in our hearts intensified. It was two o'clock in the morning, after all. We exchanged bewildered glances, trying to process the situation and figure out the best course of action. Then, he started banging on the door once more, causing us to jump. At this hour, any unexpected visitor would be unsettling. I continued to watch him from the window while my friend attempted to call his parents. Despite his repeated attempts, he couldn't reach them. In his panic, he didn't even think to call the hotel or wherever his parents were staying. Finally, the man walked away, giving us a brief moment of relief. However, that relief was short-lived. Approximately 30 seconds later, he returned and taped a note to the front door without knocking. He sat on the front steps for nearly five minutes before disappearing from our view. We assumed that whoever this person was, he had left for good. My friend, eager to unravel the mystery, went to unlock the door. I shouted at him to stop, fearing the worst, 
He argued that the man had left, and we had nothing to worry about anymore. We both wanted to know what the note said, so my friend cautiously opened the door and retrieved it. As he pulled off the tape, we heard a booming voice from the distance shouting, Hey, you! We froze in terror and looked up. The man who had been knocking earlier emerged from the bushes across the street, charging towards the door. We screamed as we slammed the door shut, and another large man, who had not been there before, joined him from the bushes. My buddy managed to lock the door, just in the nick of time. Both men began pounding on the door with ferocity, their blows shaking the entire house. I glanced out the window and saw the larger man, who was not originally present, repeatedly slamming his shoulder into the door. The relentless banging filled the air, and we feared for our lives. In a panic, my friend called the police, and it seemed like the intruders heard our conversation. They fled instantly, disappearing into the night. The police arrived shortly after, and thankfully they were able to reach my friend's parents, who rushed home. The most unsettling part of this ordeal was the note that had been taped to the door. It contained violent and detailed threats, mentioning that they had come to collect money. The note stated things like, no more running around and no more excuses. It was signed with a name, Leroy. My friend's dad vehemently denied any knowledge of this Leroy or the money mentioned in the note. It was all very strange and uncomfortable, and our trust in that family was shaken for a while. However, as time passed, the incident seemed to fade into the background, and we never got any more answers or closure. To this day, my friend and I still discuss that terrifying night, wondering if his dad was hiding something. The note had been addressed to him by name, and the intruders knew where we lived. Despite the lingering questions, life moved on, but that memory of that night is etched in our minds forever. I've never been comfortable being home alone since then, and I doubt I ever will be. When I was 18 years old, I spent a significant amount of time exploring the enchanting depths of the Kohuta wilderness. My favorite spot within this untamed expanse was a secluded set of waterfalls, nestled several miles away from the nearest parking lot. While most visitors were content with parking in the RV area and swimming in the creek adjacent to the gravel road, I was drawn to the wilderness's heart. Over the course of two years, I had hiked these remote trails countless times and in all that time, I had never encountered anyone venturing farther than half a mile into this rugged terrain. One Saturday, I decided to take my girlfriend along to witness the mesmerizing beauty of the waterfall as she had never seen one in person before. Excitement and anticipation filled the air as we embarked on our journey, but just 15 minutes into our hike, she abruptly grabbed my arm and fell into an eerie silence. Her face grew pale and she muttered that she felt as though she were being watched, her voice trembling with unease. I did my best to reassure her, explaining that the only concerns I had ever faced in these woods were the occasional bear or copperhead snake. However, her sense of unease persisted as we continued deeper into the wilderness. I chalked it up to her being unfamiliar with the untamed surroundings, hoping she would eventually acclimate to the rugged beauty of the Kohuta wilderness. After a couple of hours of hiking, we finally reached the trail's end, standing before the majestic waterfall. We decided to take a break and enjoyed a picnic at the base of the falls. Once our meal was finished, 
She attempted to check her cell phone for messages, only to be met with panic when she realized there was absolutely no service. I explained that we were miles away from any cell reception, and for the first time, we were truly alone in this pristine wilderness. Oddly enough, this revelation seemed to heighten her anxiety. I tried to console her, urging her to embrace the serenity and solitude that surrounded us, but my words only seemed to exacerbate her fear, and her panic began to mount. Determined to ease her distress, we decided to start our return journey. As we retraced our steps along the trail, I couldn't help but smile, thinking that her unease was somewhat irrational. After all, I had ventured into these woods alone countless times without encountering any problems. However, her unsettling feeling of being watched persisted, casting a shadow over our hike. About a mile from the falls, as we continued on the only trail back, our peaceful walk took a terrifying turn. Suddenly, a voice called out from behind us, and I nearly jumped out of my skin. Turning around, we spotted a man approaching us. He had a rifle slung over his shoulder, a heavy beard obscuring most of his face, and his hat pulled low over his eyes. My girlfriend instinctively took a small step behind me as we stared at this unexpected stranger. "'What can I do for you?' I asked, attempting to sound friendly but vigilant. "'You guys left your cell phone back by the falls,' he said, revealing a slight grin behind his beard. His eyes lingered on my girlfriend, making her visibly uncomfortable. "'Oh, thanks for the assist,' I replied, extending my hand in gratitude. However, to our surprise, he shook his head and informed us that he hadn't brought the cell phone with him. He claimed it was still sitting up there by the falls, suggesting that we follow him back to retrieve it ourselves. Politely declining his offer, we exchanged uneasy glances before hastily making our way down the trail, our hearts pounding in our chests. To our discomfort, he followed us, maintaining a distance of several feet. His presence was a chilling reminder of our vulnerability. The man trailed us all the way back to our car, not saying a word. When we finally reached the vehicle, my girlfriend quickly showed me her cell phone, which she had indeed left behind. Relief washed over her, but her relief was tinged with lingering apprehension. Since that unsettling encounter, I haven't returned to that particular trail in the Kohuta wilderness. It remains one of the eeriest moments of my life, a reminder that sometimes, even in the most serene and remote places, the feeling of being watched can become all too real. I must begin by saying that recounting this story fills me with an overwhelming sense of melancholy. Nevertheless, it remains one of the most chilling nights of my entire existence. My father had passed away when I was a mere four or five years old, leaving a void in my life that would forever ache. My mother, a resilient woman, eventually found love again when I was ten, in the form of a man named David. Over the years, he took on the role of my father, adopting me legally and raising me as his very own. I loved him dearly, as though he were my biological father. The phrase real dad did him an injustice. He wasn't just a father. He was my father, a great man who cherished my mother and me, making us feel like the most precious beings in the world. Several months ago, David fell suddenly and critically ill. His demise came swiftly, casting a shadow of sorrow over our lives. Though he had been aged, his passing did not sting any less. My elderly mother's health had been declining steadily, and we were concerned that this loss might push her over the precipice of despair. 
Then came those terrifying nights that still haunt my thoughts. Two nights in a row, my mother called me in the dead of night, her voice trembling with fear. She claimed that there was an intruder in her home, someone moving about, and she was consumed by dread. Both times, my husband and I rushed to her aid, conducting thorough searches of the house, only to find nothing amiss. No signs of a break-in, nothing stolen, and all the doors and windows securely locked. We dismissed it as her imagination, perhaps a byproduct of her grief. On the third night, my mother implored me to stay overnight in case the intruder returned. She wanted a witness, someone who could intervene or call the authorities if necessary. I thought she was merely exhausted and having vivid dreams that felt all too real. That night, I was proven wrong. I thought I heard noises coming from the dining room, a voice distinct and eerie. My heart raced as I tiptoed toward the source, dismissing thoughts of ghosts but fearing a homeless intruder had found refuge in my mother's home. A thousand thoughts raced through my mind as I approached the room, only one door away. Then I heard it clearly, a voice, my mother's voice. I halted my cautious advance and entered the dining room. There, my mother sat at the head of the table, engaged in an animated conversation with no one. It was the most unsettling sight. Her eyes were wide open, yet they seemed distant, as though she occupied a strange state between wakefulness and slumber. She neither acknowledged my presence nor shifted her gaze in my direction. In a cheerful voice, she greeted me. Hello, dear, I'm just enjoying some time with David. I glanced at the chair next to her, slightly pulled out as if she had prepared it for someone to sit in. Her eyes were the most disconcerting. They appeared devoid of humanity, with an unsettling smile frozen on her face. I hesitantly reminded her that David had passed away, but she simply laughed and waved her hand dismissively, saying, You're so silly. David's sitting right here. My words faltered and I felt utterly lost. Should I indulge her and let her find comfort in this surreal conversation with her deceased husband? Or should I attempt to tether her back to the harsh reality of her crushing heartbreak? She seized my hand, still avoiding eye contact, and said, You can leave now, sweetie. My heart sank as she repeated, It was just David. Over and over, her speech devolving into gibberish interspersed with the name David. I realized that my mother had been grappling with the depths of her grief in a way I couldn't fathom. The line between reality and her fragile psyche had blurred beyond recognition. When I tried to gently move her, she snarled like a wounded animal, growling. I called my husband, and together we faced a difficult decision. We dialed 911, as we had no idea how to help her. The situation escalated as the paramedics attempted to take her to the hospital. She became fiercely hostile, even violent. Not because we were taking her away from her home, but because we were taking her away from David. She vehemently insisted that she couldn't leave because David wanted her there. In the end, my mother never fully returned to her former self. Her eyes, half open and distant, never regained their normalcy. The doctors explained that she had experienced a severe nervous breakdown, compounded by her advanced age, which left her unable to distinguish between reality and her own fragile mind. It was a heart-wrenching ordeal. When my biological father passed away, my mother buried her emotions to raise me, finding solace in David's love. Losing him was akin to losing nearly everything she held dear. I apologize if this story is disheartening, but it serves as a reminder of the fragility of the human mind. There are moments when I wonder if David's presence truly lingered that night, and it sends a shiver down my spine. Take care of your loved ones and tell them you love them whenever you can. Life is fragile. 
and the mind, an enigmatic and formidable tool, can conjure unimaginable realities in times of distress.